We're doing something different today in looking at the life of Joseph, and we've moved communion to the end of the service. And every time we come to the Lord's table, I feel like there's a different emphasis. God does different things. You'll notice that sometimes we'll do a liturgy, a liturgical reading, and I feel like it's really important to connect with uh, previous generations. Uh, That's why we've uh, looked to the past and found some uh, beautiful readings and liturgies. It's so powerful to proclaim things together. Um, Today, we're not going to do that. I felt like today needed to be more of a contemplative time and also a time for prayer and responding to what I'm going to share with you out of the life of Joseph. Because one of the elements of communion that we're going to talk about today is that in all of our suffering, Christ is right there with us. We know what Jesus did on the cross, and frequently when we talk about that, we talk about forgiveness. We talk about how he came to redeem us. That's true. But when I read Isaiah chapter 53, and it says he carried our sorrows, what does that mean? I really believe that Jesus not only came to forgive us and to change us, but he came to heal our hearts. When he was on the cross, I believe that in some way all of us were in his heart. He knew who we would be. Even in our failings and in our sin, he willfully went to the cross. He despised the cross knowing that there was a higher purpose. And he was dying for us so that he could reconcile us to God. But also there was a healing and restoration. I think there's something in all of our hearts. We long for a place that's perfect to live. A place that is perfectly safe. A place that we're home. There's also a a yearning in our hearts for the perfection that God intended in Eden at the beginning of time. It's coming. But in the meantime, we live in a broken world, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. How do we we overcome in the world of brokenness that we live in? Joseph is, his story is an amazing story. I want to uh, look at Genesis 41. I'm not going to read the whole story. We're going to look at three principles today, and next week we're going to look at three other principles, uh, so six altogether, that we see in the life of Joseph. And I I broke into our study on James because I felt impressed to the Lord that this was a message that we needed to hear now. I feel like this is a now now word for the church. It's a fit word in, in this season that the Lord wants us to hear. So Genesis 41, we'll pick it up in verse 39. This is after Joseph has been sprung from prison. They clean him up. He appears before Pharaoh. He shares Pharaoh's dream with him. He explains what's going to happen in the next uh, 14 years, and he get, or, or seven years, excuse me, and he gives them a clear understanding of the future. Pharaoh puts him uh, in the position of vizier. Uh, he was the second in all of Egypt, and uh, under Pharaoh, he was the ruler of Egypt. Verse 39, it says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You should be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and the people shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the new name of Zaphonath Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Excuse me, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So if you understand this, he's 30 years old. He was about 17 when he was sold into slavery in Egypt. So there's 13 years here that he experienced a lot of adversity. Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully, and Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food uh, growth in the fields surrounding it. And Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea, and it was much that he stopped keep, it was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all of my father's household. We're going to look at the names of Joseph's children because they're a key to what God did in Joseph's life in those 13 years. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Father, just open our hearts today. And I pray, Lord, that your word would have a powerful effect in each one of us. Lord, we're all in different places, but your word has something to say to each one of us. And I pray today that your Holy Spirit would take the word and apply it to our heart and mind. Give us wisdom, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the story of Joseph, and I think it's one of the most amazing stories in all the Bible. It's one of the most amazing stories, I think, in human history, especially written history of overcoming adversity. So God gives Joseph a dream at age 17, and in the dream, he has this picture of all of his family bowing down before him, which would lead people to believe that at some point he's going to be a ruler, he's going to be a leader. And admittedly, at age 17, he probably would have been wiser not to share that with his brothers because there was already a lot of sibling rivalry, a lot of uh, tension in that family. We know from the story that uh, he was rejected by his siblings, so much so that when they had the opportunity to get rid of him, they almost killed him. But Judah, I believe, one of the older brothers, uh, convinced them it'd be better to sell him into slavery. And uh, Joseph's dream turns into a nightmare. He's sold into slavery. He's separated from his parents. He's going to a culture that he doesn't know, a language that he doesn't know. He's falsely accused by his employer's wife of rape, and um, he's a victim of a rigged trial. He has no opportunity to share his story because he's a slave. His words don't count for anything in the land of Egypt. So these years were not dreamlike at all. It was more of a nightmare. And then Joseph is forgotten in prison, forgotten by people anyway, even when he intervenes in the life of some of Pharaoh's leaders who are also in prison, uh, they forget him. So here's the question. If God had given him a dream and the Lord promised to be with him, where was God in all of this and why did God let him suffer? I find that this is one of the stories that people often ask. If God is a good God, and I love what Jonathan shared with us last week, God is a good God, isn't he? Yeah. He is good. There's nothing evil. There's nothing dark in God. God is not out to get us. 
If that's still in your mind, you need to get that theology out right away. He only wants what is best for you. He only wants what is perfect. He has a plan for you. He has a destiny and a design for everybody that will come to him and open their hearts to the Lord. But then people ask, well, why do, why do bad things happen? How could God allow bad things to happen in this world? How could God allow bad things happen to his very people that he calls? You look at some of the people that belong to the Lord and you have to ask the question, why would the Lord allow that to happen? How does a good God allow things to happen in a world like this? And I would say from a human perspective, Joseph had every right to be bitter, don't you think? I mean, he could have been angry. He could have been bitter against so many people, like the one guy that we did, Janice and I did freedom prayer with in Nashville many years ago. He said, I don't think I need to forgive anybody. And we said, well, let's pray and ask. And pretty soon he had a list of 97 people. Joseph probably could have had a list of people that he needed to forgive. A lot of people that had offended him, a lot of people that had betrayed him, people that tried to kill him. What do you do when your brothers, the people you're supposed to trust the most, thought of killing you and settled on selling you for 20 pieces of silver instead? That's pretty bad. Genesis 39.2 and Genesis 39.20, I want to look at these verses give us a, a very interesting clue. In Genesis 39.2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Now, I want to say something here that's hard for us to understand, but here Joseph is sold into slavery and it says the Lord was with him. You're saying, wait a minute, God, get him out of there. Why didn't the Lord just spring him from that situation and help him to escape? But the Lord is with him in the midst of that situation. Something that we need to hear today is in some of the darkest, deepest moments of our life, we thought God had abandoned us and the Lord was right there with us. We, we find it easy to know that God is with us when we're worshiping him and we feel his presence and everything is going well. But I want to tell you, sometimes through the darkest moments, through the suffering, through the hardest times, that's when God is the closest to us. And sometimes it's our theology that gets in the way. We say, Lord, I don't know if I can stand this. I don't know if I can deal with this. I don't know what's going on. And the Lord says, I'm with you. I'm going to bring you through this. I love the song that we sang, the updated it as well with our soul today. Because you look at, at some of these hymns, we don't realize that the man that wrote that had lost his children. They'd been washed overboard, and he's writing this song where they went down as he's crossing the Atlantic. And he's able to say, it's well with my soul. Folks, that's supernatural. There's another clue here. Joseph's in prison, Genesis 39, 20. It says, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And I'd be saying, Lord, my theology is a little different. Can you get me out of this place? I don't want to be in this prison. It says the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Is this messing with your theology? Because we like to wrap up God in a very comfortable package. And we say, Lord, I'm with you when you're doing things the way I want in my life. 
But when things are going bad, I assume that you have disappeared and you're no longer there. How many, how many would say, have you been tempted to do that? I have. And here, the Lord is with Joseph in the midst of all this. Now, all these questions come up in my mind. So did God create this suffering? Is this some kind of class Joseph has to go through? Is God the initiator of evil? Did God make things happen? I mean, these are, these are all valid questions. Was Joseph's suffering part of God's plan? Was Joseph responsible for bringing his own suffering? A lot of people would say, well, Joseph must have done something wrong. He had to work out bad karma. And karma's not in the Bible. Just want you to know that. Okay, there is the law of sowing and reaping. Could Joseph have made his life easier by not sharing his dream with everybody? Yes. There was another 17-year-old in the Bible that was a little bit wiser than Joseph. That was Mary, the, the mother of Jesus. The angel spoke to her and said she pondered all these things in her heart. She kept it to herself. So Joseph could have learned that. Okay, he could have done a little bit better in not bringing the heat down on himself, but I don't think he was the victim of evil. So let's take a look at how evil works and how suffering works in our society. I think this is important for us to understand. So what can we learn from God's purpose for suffering in our lives? What can we learn from Joseph's example? How did Joseph's response to injustice in his life set him up for success and spiritual victory? We're going to answer some of the questions today and some next week. So we know the end of the story. In one day, Joseph is raised from prison to vizier of all Egypt. Eventually, he forgives his brothers. He forgets the pain of his father's household. And God uses him to rescue not only his people, his own family, about 160 of them, I believe, Virtually, Joseph rescues the entire, that part of the Middle East through this time of famine, okay? So the Lord impressed me, uh, I guess it was about a week or two ago, to look at the name of Joseph's sons again and to go back and take a look because they're key for what God wants to show us. So number one, let's look at the first principle. In this world, we will have trouble and suffering along with the blessing, in this world, we will have trouble along with the suffering and the blessing. It's all part of the package and why we live. Why does God allow suffering, people often ask. And I've had people that have been so angry at God. I've talked to people about the Lord, and I, had one, I remember one guy said, God, let my brother die. I don't even want to talk to you. And I could feel his pain and angst, and I thought, well, you have some things going on in your theology, this guy did. And everybody has a theology, don't they? Years ago, let me just digress for a moment here. I wrote a letter to the Kent Stater. Uh, they, were, they were having a debate about, uh, day, uh, uh, they called them acts of God days when uh, there was a disaster or there was a bad snowstorm. And I challenged the university. I said, so you apparently have a developed theology that God only does bad things. Is that correct? But it's funny that, that some people have a theology they're not even aware of. Many people have what I call a modified determinism. How many of you know what determinism is? Determinism says that no matter what you do, it doesn't matter because God's going to make things happen his way, and that's just the way it is. It's kind of like fatalism. So you might, not, might as well not even try because what's going to happen is going to happen, and, and God's going to make it all happen. I'm not a determinist because God has given us free will. 
Now, does he know what's going to happen? Yeah, because he lives in eternity. He can see the future. He sees all that. We don't understand that, but we live in time and space, two boundaries that God has given to us, and he's given us free will to make decisions. And we need to understand one of the dynamics that we're going to talk about here is that there is a law of sowing and reaping. Sometimes we do make bad decisions and we reap the harvest of the decisions we've made. How many of you are aware of that? Now, what I find with modified determinists is this. They tend to think that God is responsible for everything, but they don't take responsibility for anything in their life. It's like, you know, I was, God, I was going like 100 miles an hour, and you allowed me to get a ticket. God, how could you let me get pregnant? I mean, where's the assumption in those statements? By the way, I've never been pregnant. I need to. <laughs> These are just things I've heard over the years. God, how could you allow me to lose all my money investing in marijuana stocks? I haven't done that either. Just want you to know that. I keep getting these things, though, from former Ohio officials and people from Congress saying, please invest in this stock. And I'm thinking, wow. Okay. So people get angry. We need to understand our choices that we make don't only affect ourselves, but they affect people around us. There are going to be moments in your experience where other people are going to make a free will choice that's not a very good choice, and it's going to affect you. That's called injustice. So in 1987, when I got a call in the middle of the night from my friend who said my daughter was on the way home from work, and she was hit by a drunk driver that was uh, on the run from Texas. She, they, they lived in Missouri. And uh, T-boned her car, hit her right in the middle, and Jennifer went home just like that. And I thought, Lord, how, how do you explain this? How do you do this? Talk to Jennifer's mom, and she said, she said, I don't know what's going on, but about a week ago, Jennifer came to me and said, I feel like I need to get my life right with God, and then I need to recommit myself to him and whatever. We don't know how God works in people. I will tell you this, Jennifer's life is not over. It's just being lived in a different place. From God's perspective, we need to understand that. We grieve because of the brokenness of the world and the loss that we feel. But we don't always understand things from God's perspective. But I want you to think about that. There were choices that were made. There were decisions that were made. There were things that were made. We will experience injustice in this world that has nothing to do with what we do or whether we deserved it. There were a group of people that went up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, did you hear about the Tower of Siloam? It fell and all these people were killed. And then they said, did you hear also about the Pilate's soldiers went into the temple and they actually killed people, defiled the temple, and they were killed there and their blood was there in the holy place. And, and uh, it was a terrible tragedy. And then Jesus says something that rocks my theology. He said, if you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Instead of saying, oh, that's a tragedy, that's a terrible thing. If you go on to read what Jesus said, what Jesus is saying, we're amazed when we say bad things happen to good people. And Jesus is saying, all of us are sinners. We should be amazed when bad things don't happen to us. We get things totally turned around. We live in a broken world. There's even this assumption in Christianity that's being taught in many places today that once you commit your life to Christ, everything is going to go okay. If you can just confess it, you can believe it. You okay? Take a deep breath. I heard that laughter. But that everything is going to go okay. 
God does rescue us. I thank God. I thank God that he touched my sister Bonnie, but sometimes he takes people home. I remember years ago, I had a, it was actually a girl that I was dating. This is before I met Janice. Many years ago. I have to qualify everything. And uh, she was from Pittsburgh. And her dad was a really crazy atheist guy. And he was mad at, uh, uh, who was the lady? Catherine Kuhlman that had meetings there because she had meetings in Youngstown here in Akron and Pittsburgh, whatever. And she had just died. And he said, see, I told you she was a phony. And I said, she was 78 years old. She lived a wonderful life. He said, yeah, and she had an estate of $700,000. I said, well, so will you when you retire. He looked at me and says, yeah, that's right. It's funny things how people think. And I asked asked this guy, my girlfriend's dad, I said, do you think Lazarus is still alive because Jesus healed him? Jesus healed him, and it was a temporary intervention in the life of a man. But there was a time later when Lazarus went home, and he experienced death like most of us will unless Jesus returns. So sometimes we have these unrealistic views of God coming and rescuing us. There are times when we go through sorrow, when we go through challenges, and we go through situations. But now we need to ask the question, what is God's purpose for that? How can God use that? And by the way, let me say this. Do I believe that God creates scenarios for us? No, I don't. But I do believe God allows us to go through this broken world and experience things. Can I point something out as we get ready to go to the communion table this afternoon? The Lord came and experienced all of that in this world on our behalf. He experienced sorrow. He experienced rejection. It says in Isaiah 53, he was a man who was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He experienced every human condition. He wanted to identify with what we have in this broken world. He is going to restore everything at the end of days, but until that time, he wants to be right there with us through the brokenness, redeeming as much as we can. Does that make sense? Not everything that happens in this world, by the way, is God's will. There's a spiritual war going on. We live in a world where evil is present. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We will have this battle until Jesus vanquishes evil for good at the end of this age. Did Joseph do something to bring uh, injustice and evil upon him? I think the answer is no. He suffered under the hands of evil people who made ungodly choices. A lot of them. Brothers full of jealousy and envy, whose hearts were full of murder and greed, who sold their brother. And by the way, is it past your notice that you can be perfect and do everything right and still get crucified? Potiphar's wife, who was full of adultery, lust, manipulation, and dishonor, who lied about Joseph to get revenge. Joseph was a victim. But guess what? He didn't choose to take his identity and victimhood. He continued to be a person who found his identity in the living God. And somehow, through the midst of all this suffering, he becomes the hero at the end of the story. And I think his response to the suffering, his response to what he experienced, his response to injustice made the difference. All of us have an opportunity at some level or another at one time in our life to take on a victim identity. It doesn't get you anywhere. 
What it does is gets you defeated because you find your identity in the bad things that have happened instead of the ability to overcome in a God that helps you infinitely through all things. Suffering is part of the human condition, and part of our theology needs to be an understanding of how suffering and hardship are part of God's plan, working out his will in us. Mark 10, verse 28 through 31, is one of the most mistaught uh, portions of Scripture in the New Testament. And the people that are the um, prosperity people teach this, and this is one of the scriptures they use to talk about how God's going to give you a hundredfold blessing if you give to their ministries. By the way, hundredfold blessing there doesn't mean 100 times whatever. It means 100 exponentially. It's 100 in little exponential symbol to the right. So that means that if you give $10 to God, it could be a trillion dollars coming back if this works out the way it's supposed to with them, right? Figure it out. But let's read this text. I want you to read this again. Peter is questioning Jesus because he just told the rich young ruler that he can't get into heaven unless he's willing to give up uh, all the riches that have become an idol in his life and his, and his heart. We're going to talk about economics in a couple weeks, too. Stay tuned. We're going to talk about economics and generosity. But Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not... Well, wait a minute. Let's stop right there. I hear these people talking about a hundredfold blessing. That only applies to people that have left everything to follow Jesus. Is that sinking in? Look at the context here. I was taught this as a little boy, that God wants us to sow seeds and that he's going to make us rich. I was talking to an Amish bishop on a cold winter day down in Holmes County, and uh, I went to his place of business, and we ended up having a theological discussion in this by this little heater for a couple hours. And he said, are you one of those people that teaches that if you come to Jesus, God wants to make you rich? I said, no. He kept asking me question after question. He said, I want to find out what kind of Christian you are. He says, you don't fit into any of the categories that I understand about Christians in the English community. I said, good, let's keep talking. So it goes on, for all those who have left all these things for my sake in the gospels, you shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions. How many of you want a hundredfold persecution? Claim it right now. This is the funny thing. You can't take Scripture. You can't take part of the Scripture without the rest of the Scripture. And by the way, when it says that you're going to get lands and all these things, how many of you want hundredfold mothers? How many of you want hundredfold fathers? Do you know what this means? It means you're going to become part of a community of people that love God, and you're going to be welcome in their homes, and you're going to be cared for even if you have nothing because you've left everything for the gospel. How do we make this about financial prosperity? By the way, I do believe God wants to bless us so that you can be a blessing. We're going to talk about that. But it doesn't always happen the way that we think. With persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So what Jesus is saying here is he's going to bless us but we need to have an eternal perspective and along with all the good things that he does and the dynamic work that he does in the church and making us part of this incredible community that's going to love us 
And by the way, I have a lot of fathers. Although many of them have gone on to heaven. I have more sons now than I have fathers. At one time, I had more fathers than sons. Steve Fry is one of my spiritual fathers, even though he's only a couple years older than me. But I have spiritual fathers, and I have spiritual moms. I've had them throughout my life. I hope you do have many spiritual moms and spiritual dads. And that you can be a spiritual mom and a spiritual dad to the people that are coming behind you. This verse has been so abused by charismatics, it just it drives me crazy. Let me share the second principle, and then we'll stop there, and we're going to go to the communion table. Number two, God doesn't create suffering, but he allows us to go through suffering to accomplish his purpose. There's a higher purpose in the suffering that we go through. I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 12. And this is Hebrews 12 comes right after Hebrews 11, where it talks about all of the great men and women of the faith. I call it the Hall of Faith Scripture, where he describes all the people in the Old Testament that lived for the Lord and that were victorious. In verse 12, 5, the second part of the verse, he says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Verse 7 is key. Listen to this. Endure hardship as discipline. When hard things come your way, when things that came Joseph's way, essentially what the Lord is saying, consider that discipline. And I'll explain discipline in a moment. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirit, of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The word discipline, when we think of the word discipline, often we think of punishment. That's not what this verse means. The word discipline here, really, if you look at it in the Greek and in the context, is more in line with physical training to become an athlete. It's having a disciplined life. It's putting aside comfort to achieve something. The word here is used more in that context. And in Hebrews 12, 1, here's the, here's the context. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So he's talking about an athlete here. He's saying, let's do our best. Get rid of everything that's going to make you a bad runner, everything that's going to weigh you down so that you can run the race and fix your eyes on Jesus. We're told that hardship in our life is part of our discipline, our training to become like Jesus. God disciplines and trains everyone he loves. He says, endure hardship. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? So our first reaction when hardship comes our way is not to say, God, you've abandoned me. Where are you in this? But to say, Lord, this is a really difficult situation. What are you wanting to teach me through this? What are you wanting to say to me? What are you wanting to do in me? God disciplines and trains everyone he loves. Thank you, Jesus. 
Can I share one more? Is that okay? The third principle I want to share with you, forgiveness is the key that releases God's grace and power in our lives. Can I tell you something? Here's the, here's the key to this whole story. If Joseph didn't forgive, God couldn't have done a thing in him or through him. He never would have been the vice regent of Egypt. Forgiveness is the key that releases God's power in our lives. Genesis in verse 40, uh, chapter 41, 51, it says, Joseph, na- Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all of my father's household. What was he saying? He was saying God had done a healing in his heart. It didn't mean that he had forgotten his family. By the way, names are important in Scripture. Be careful how you name your children. Be careful what you name your business. Names are really important. The name of Joseph's son contains the principles we need to walk in victory. The the name, according to Strong's Concordance, sounds like it may be derived from the Hebrew for forget. So he called his firstborn Manasseh. God has made me forget, completely forget his hardship and his parental home. The name Manasseh is connected to the word Neshach, which means forgetting and letting go. God does not stop remembering when things happen, by the way. It says God forgets our sins. It doesn't mean that he doesn't remember what we did, because God remembers everything. What it does mean is he chooses not to use the past against us. Hallelujah. Okay? In our marriage, when we forgive our spouse... What we're saying is, I choose not to use this against you in the future. That's one of the, the principles of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Joseph doesn't lose his memory here. What he's saying is, my past is not going to define who I am now and define who I am in the future. I'm not going to let that happen. His pain no longer obstructed his future or clouded how he saw the present. He was able to let go of the trauma and injustices of his heart and soul, and it began with the decision of his will. By the way, it doesn't mean that you're not going to experience emotion when you forgive. We forgive as an exercise of our will, and sometimes the emotions take a long time after we make that decision to forgive. Maybe that's why Jesus says we need to forgive 70 times 7, that we need to keep forgiving and say, Lord, I already made this decision, but the emotions are right there, and I need to release those people again. I think Joseph was tempted again when his brother showed up in front of him. Joseph could have stayed in bitterness. He could have gotten revenge. That was the family pattern, wasn't it? Jealousy, bitterness, lying, revenge are all the patterns that Jacob's family exhibits. Remember, the two brothers got mad because their sister was violated. And instead of just dealing with the guy that did that, they killed the entire town. They wiped out an entire town off the face of the map. These were serious guys. Sounds kind of like some of the mafia guys in the neighborhood I grew up with in the Italian-American tradition. No, I'm I'm kidding. That's a stronghold in Italian culture. We get the word vendetta in our language. Why? Because we don't have it in English. So we get it from other, we borrow from other languages what we don't have in our own. Innuendo, vendetta, tells you a little bit about Italian culture. I can say that because that's how I was raised. I want you to notice that Joseph walks in the opposite spirit from everything he learned in his family. Not only does he get free from the strongholds that had defined his family, but later he gets an opportunity to lead them out of a pattern of lying, out of a pattern of bitterness. Joseph becomes, 
And, and I want you to notice something else. Joseph becomes this, this hero to his family, but he leads them into freedom if they're willing to do that. There's a pattern in Scripture. God often removes a key person from the community they've been raised in and their place of origin, takes them to another place, does amazing things in them, and brings them back to teach the people that they left. You say, where's that? Moses, Abraham, Jacob. Start looking at the Bible. Ruth. Esther, Daniel, it's an ongoing theme. God wants to take us out of what we are used to, and sometimes that's an uncomfortable thing, but they return with a higher purpose. Joseph identified a higher purpose in his life, and he was willing to subordinate his own comfort and concerns for the higher purpose of God. This is the consummate definition of a mature man or woman of God is to be able to say, I'm going through suffering, but God has a higher purpose, and I'm going to live that out willing to put aside our own comfort and accomplish good things on behalf of others. We see the same spirit in Jesus Christ where he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But I know what you're doing, and that's why I'm going to forgive them. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Joseph didn't have that verse yet, but he could have written it, couldn't he? There was a higher purpose there. So we'll finish the next three principles next week, but I want to ask you a question. Is there a higher storyline to your life that you haven't discovered yet? Some of you may be saying, man, my life has gone wrong in so many ways. And the Lord is saying, I just want you to come through this and get the lessons. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose for you. If we believe that we're in God's heart from the beginning of time, that he has a destiny and our identity is in him, can we believe that even through the suffering and brokenness, the things that we experience, loss of finances, loss of jobs, loss of relationships, I mean, bad things happen even to God's people. Can we say with Joseph, what was meant for evil, God has turned to good? Are we able to praise God even in the midst of suffering? Listen again to Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. I believe that God has a plan and purpose for each one of us. Can we just bow our heads for a moment? I want to read Scripture, and I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Jeff and whoever else is going to be leading worship to come. And we're just going to close by sharing communion. If you would like to stay and pray, uh, the prayer team will be at the back, and uh, we'll be delighted to pray for you whether that's physical healing, spiritual, emotional healing. Maybe you're struggling with what I shared today. Maybe there are things that are unhealed in your heart, and you say, I just need God to touch me. Uh, the Lord is here, and I believe he wants to heal. Well, the words of the Apostle Paul, as we just wait quietly before the Lord, let me just read these. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, as we come to the communion table, we just think again of the cross. Lord, we acknowledge that you did not have to redeem the people that rebelled against you, but because you loved us, you left your place of rulership in heaven and took on the most humble package coming in the form of a little baby. You experienced everything that we experience, hunger, cold, rejection. Betrayal. The sorrow of losing someone that you loved. I believe when you wept at Lazarus's grave, you felt the pain that all people feel when they lose someone, when someone dies. And Lord, today I felt like you were saying to us that you wanted to remind us that you're in our story. Lord, there are people here that are really struggling with things in their life. And the Lord wants you to know right now that he's right there with you. You may be in a place that you feel it feels like prison. You may be in a place where you feel it's not optimum. And just like Joseph is saying, the Lord was with him, even in the midst of that place. God is with you. He wants you to reach out and he wants you to touch him. I also felt very strongly the Lord saying that some of you, the reason why you're stuck and you have not gotten out of that place is because you haven't come to that place of forgiveness. There are people that sin against us that will never be worthy of being forgiven. They'll never say they're sorry. They'll never acknowledge their sin. They'll never acknowledge the injustice of what they've done. And yet we forgive, Lord, because you've forgiven us and we didn't deserve to be forgiven. So, Lord, as we come to this table today, we just ask you, Lord, just like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, we need to examine our hearts and find if there's any way in us, Lord, that is not conforming to your truth and to your love. Help us, Lord, to release those who have sinned against us. Help us to release the offenses, the injustices, in a world that seems more offendable every day. Everybody's offended about everything. Help us, Lord, to be people whose hearts are free from unforgiveness. To walk as Jesus did, saying, Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But I know you, and I know that you are worthy of praise. Hallelujah.